Welcome to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit SharonChurch.com. We hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. God, you are enough for us. Things that are um, clamoring for our attention and our desires that pull us away from you to try to deceive us into thinking that you aren't enough. It's the same sin from Adam and Eve in the garden. It's just believing that you aren't enough, that the things you, you have for us aren't enough and we need something. So first, God, we confess and we repent from that way of thinking. Oh, it's so hard to believe it. So help our unbelief. Would you even remind us today through worship, through the music, through being together in community and through the study of your word that you are enough for us, that you have everything that we need is in you. I don't mean that some hyper-spiritual way, but in a practical way that you satisfy our souls. So in the ways that many of us have come in this morning feeling drained and exhausted from worshiping other idols, that don't satisfy in your grace, uh, would you show us that you're enough? Whatever it looks like this morning, a text from a friend while we're here in church or a verse that uh, compels us back to you or a lyric that draws us to your heart. Whatever it is, God, meet us where we are. You are faithful to do so. Our feet are here. Uh, Help our hearts to catch up. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start a new series this morning through the book of Ephesians. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 1. What we're going to do is I'm going to start in Ephesians, then we're going to go to Revelation, then we're going to come back to Acts, and then we'll actually be in Ephesians in like two weeks. But we're going to start the series of Ephesians today in a number of different passages. Uh, The church at Ephesus is a church that we know more about than any other church in Scripture. We see everything from the church's beginning to the beginning of its demise. We see all of it. Uh, And sometimes we're tempted to read Scripture in a way that this is the prototype church, this is the example, and uh, we begin to make the church at Ephesus kind of the hero. The problem is that Jesus is the hero. The church of Ephesus is not the hero. So I want to point out some ways uh, that that works for us. And I don't know if you've ever experienced something where you've, maybe you've tried to fix something, right? Maybe you've tried to fix, maybe you had a toilet leaking and you tried to fix your toilet only to make the problem worse than when, when it began. Has that ever happened to you? Or maybe it wasn't a toilet, maybe it was a car, um, maybe it was, I don't know what it was, but you tried to fix it and you made the problem worse. And then somebody, you call a friend, say, hey, can you help? And the friend says, oh, yeah, I wish you would have called me earlier because I would have told you not to do that with your toilet. Anybody, has that ever happened to you? And you're like, thanks for being a good friend because you knew I was fixing the toilet. You could have given me the information a week ago instead of me flooding my house. That would have been much better. Well, what I wanted to do this morning is I, I want to be that friend. And so we're gonna look at the end of the church of Ephesus because I, I don't want us to step into studying the church of Ephesus without first understanding uh, this is what went wrong so we don't make the same mistakes. So we're gonna do that uh, uh, together. I'm gonna give you some history for the church of Ephesus. So if you take notes, I would encourage you to be taking notes. If you don't take notes, I would encourage you to take notes. Uh, if, you want to, if you want to write in your Bible, I believe you can. I don't think that the Bible itself 
Like that physical Bible is something sacred. I think you can actually write in it. So I would encourage you to do that. We're gonna be in Ephesians for 12 to 13 weeks together, which sounds awesome to me and boring to you, uh, but it's gonna be amazing. I like a good road trip. So we're gonna take a road trip through the book of Ephesians together. Let's go to Ephesians chapter one, verse one. I wanna give us uh, the introduction and then I wanna give us some context so we understand the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. So just, we'll talk about this more next week. Next week, we'll put some kind of historical context to it. Right now, I wanna put some biblical context to this letter. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus. We'll learn more about Paul here in a second. But Paul is the author. He tells us he is. So we're gonna believe that it's him. Then verse two, he says, grace to you and peace. This is a, a typical greeting from Paul, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes this letter to the saints that are in Ephesus. Ephesus is um, in Asia Minor, which is now modern day Turkey. It's towards the coastline, a river runs through it. I think that's a book or a movie. Uh, and then, but Ephesus is a, a trade center. It's an artistic center. It is, I mean, it's, it is the center of the world at that, at that time. And the reason that you and I are here today studying the book of Ephesus and that we even know who Jesus is is in large part because of the church of Ephesus. It's not a fairy tale. It's not something that somebody made up. This, this church was the gateway to Europe and then from Europe, the gospel got to us. Without the church at Ephesus, you and I are not here and we don't know Jesus. This is important to us, the church at Ephesus. But we can read in scripture how the church at Ephesus began. And I'm not really a history buff. I, I did not like history in school. I liked math better because uh, I could make sense of it. I don't like having to memorize things that I probably will never use again in my life unless I'm at trivia night um, at the Mexican restaurant. But uh, maybe you like history and that's fine. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying I use the things I learned and maybe you haven't. But maybe you've won some gift cards and I, and I haven't and that's fine. All right, so I'm gonna give us some history because now I've grown to understand the importance of history, especially in context of the word of God. So go ahead and write this down. We gotta move quickly through it. So here we go. In AD 34, so close to 2,000 years ago, AD 34, a man by the name of Stephen uh, was stoned to death. Not Bob Marley stoned, but stoned with rocks. He was stoned to death. Uh, this happened in Acts chapter six through eight. We learn about Stephen. Stephen was one of the first deacons in the early church, Okay. So deacon, the Greek word just means a servant or one who serves. Uh, the church, we just read about the church for the past, the past four weeks. The early church had begun. They're reaching a ton of people. And whenever you reach people, problems happen because problems come with people. And so many people are coming, but now they're, they're not meeting the needs of some widows in the church. And so people raise this problem to the leadership, the elders of the church. And the elders say this, they say, hey, we cannot neglect the prayers and the teaching of God's word. We can't leave those things. Let us appoint deacons to handle the ministry of the church, to handle the practical hands-on ministries of the church. That's what a deacon is. Our deacons, the role of a deacon in a church is different from an elder. They are not the same thing. The role of a deacon is to meet the practical needs of the church body. So Stephen is a deacon, but deacons have the same qualifications that elder, as elders do. So Stephen knows the word of God and he stands before uh, Jewish leaders and he gives a 
brilliant sermon about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And like what happens when you give brilliant sermons, um, controversy happens, which is why I don't give brilliant ones. I just give mediocre ones to save my life. It's just safer that way. So Stephen does, and, and, and he gets stoned, but while he is, he's murdered, while he is murdered, a man by the name of Saul, a young leader in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leading council of the time, is standing by, and, and scripture reads in Acts that he is approving of the death of Stephen. Now, uh, six to nine months later, in AD 35, Saul is on his road, uh, on the road to go kill Christians. He doesn't like what the Christians are about. He has, he has been walking in Jewish faith for his whole life, um, raised and educated under the rabbi named Gamaliel, which is one of the most brilliant theologians of their time and even today. And so he's rising to power quickly and he doesn't like what's about to happen. So he's going to do away with uh, Christians. They're called following the way is how he would describe it. But Saul meets Jesus, which is interesting because Jesus has been uh, crucified, resurrected and ascended into heaven. And Jesus comes back just to deal with Saul. He's like, don't make me come down there, Saul. And then he comes down here, Saul, and he handles Saul on his way. And Saul meets Jesus. Now, later on, Saul would go back to his Greek name of Paul. He didn't change his name. He goes back to a Greek name of Paul because God called him to reach the Gentiles or reach the Greek-speaking people. So he goes back to his name of Paul. So the author of Ephesians is Paul, who was Saul. Are you with me? We're good so far. Okay, AD 52, 17 years later, Paul visits the town of Ephesus. And uh, he, while he's there, the church kind of begins to form, but he leaves a guy named, he leaves a, a couple named Aquila and Priscilla behind, and they're gonna begin the church. A guy named Apollos is there, and Apollos begins teaching at Ephesus. And Apollos knows all about the Bible, but it's like he gets some things wrong. So Aquila and Priscilla teach him more about, about Jesus and he begins kind of launching this church. Uh, Paul leaves him there and goes on to somewhere else. It's what Paul does. And he goes somewhere else to start churches and meet, minister to people. AD 54 to 56, somewhere between that, Paul comes back to Ephesus. This is in Acts 19 and 20. We'll study some of that today and some of it next week. He returns to Ephesus, begins preaching the gospel and flips Ephesus upside down, like socioeconomically, politically, everything's going crazy in Ephesus. And so riots form and they, they kick Paul out. Paul flees for his safety from Ephesus. In AD 57, Paul calls the leadership of the church of Ephesus, which includes, uh, will it include a man by the name of Timothy that we know from scripture and an, a man by the name of John. Now, John would call himself the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That was his nickname, uh, which he gave to himself, but whatever. Uh, so this is John. What we're gonna learn, here's, here's the staff. Here are the elders at the church of Ephesus. Paul, Timothy, and John, which from our calculations is the second best church staff assembled compared to ours. It's the second best church staff assembled in history. So essentially the Avengers now are leading the church at Ephesus and um, Paul is gonna meet with the, the leadership and Paul, there's some things happening and, and Paul's gonna have to begin to hand over some leadership, okay? Now, a few years later in AD 61 to 62, Paul writes this letter to the church at Ephesus and he writes it from prison in Rome, which is where Paul writes the majority of his letters to churches happens in prison in Rome, which means God can do what he wants to do wherever he needs to do it. Paul has the time, so he writes letters. He writes, 
writes the letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, a couple of years later in AD 64, Paul's out of prison, but he leaves Timothy behind to lead the church at Ephesus. Timothy is a young preacher boy, maybe not quite ready, but Paul sees something in him and he leaves him there. And this is where Paul writes 1 Timothy to Timothy as he leads him to, leaves him to lead the church at Ephesus. Four years later in AD 68, Paul writes the second letter to Timothy, which we call 2 Timothy, uh, as he is dying, as he's being poured out as a drink offering. And he, he, it's kind of his last will and testament to Timothy of what he wants to happen. Now, somewhere in between this, the apostle John takes Mary, the mother of Jesus, because Jesus had left Mary to John at his crucifixion. And, and John takes Jesus' mother, Mary, and they move to Ephesus. In, in the 90s, not like the 1990s and Saved by the Bell, but the actual 90s, 80, 90s, from like 90 to 95, we're not sure where, uh, John writes Revelation off the Isle of Patmos, which is just off of the coast of Ephesus. Are we good? So we see this progression and growth of the church of Ephesus, like we haven't seen anything else in scripture. And even for me, studying over the past few years and studying in the past couple of weeks, learning how much of the New Testament is devoted to this church at Ephesus gives me some hope. Because a church led by Paul, Timothy, and John still needed a lot of help, which is good for us. Um, it just reminds us that whenever humans are in charge, humans do human things. And we need the Lord to, to, um, to intercede on our behalf. So we're gonna pick up in Revelation chapter two. This is the end of the church because I, I want you to see before we get into the church of Ephesus, before we make it kind of the holy grail of churches, I want you to see what happened to this church if we're not careful when we read. Revelation chapter two, verse one. This is Jesus speaking to John in a vision to write down what he sees. Jesus says to the angel or the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That is Jesus. We don't have time, but a lampstand is what holds lamps or candles. It's what gives light um, value. Without a lampstand, a candle doesn't do much. Verse two, these are the words of Jesus to the church at Ephesus. I know your works, which is great. He's intimately acquainted with the church at Ephesus. Your toil, which is not just work, but it's, it's hard work. It's, it's labor intensive. It, is, it takes some grit. I know your toil, your works and your toil, your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. So what we know quickly about the church at Ephesus is they're a hardworking church and they are devoted to doctrine. They are um, experts in doctrine. They are a discerning church. They can discern between true prophets or true apostles and the false ones. They know true biblical teaching and false teaching. They discern well. They're a doctrinally sound church. They seem to have the right theology. This is the kind of church that I would love to be a part of from here. I would love for us to be a church that is sound with doctrine and sound with theology. This, this would be a great compliment to any church. Verse three, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. This is an enduring church. They have worked hard and they're not just enduring like, enduring like your kids endure something or like we as adults endure um, virtual school or whatever it is, like with patience, like they are in, they're, they're gladly enduring for the sake of the name of Jesus. 
again, this seems like a church I would love to be a part of and would love to help lead. And you have not grown weary. They are not tired. They enjoy what they're doing. They have found what it is that they want to do. Then verse four, Jesus begins this, this next sentence with the word but. Now, I don't know how, uh, how you feel about this, but for me, when somebody uses the word but in conversation, I discount everything they said before that word but. Like if you're going to apologize to me, say, hey, I'm sorry that I did this, but, then it's not an apology. So Jesus compliments. He, again, pours out affirmation. He says, but here's the issue. This I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So here's what we know about the church at Ephesus. Um, they knew the truths about Jesus, but those truths about Jesus did not lead them to love Jesus. They loved the knowledge of Jesus more than they loved Jesus. They loved fighting for Jesus more than they loved being with Jesus. In other words, the church at Ephesus would have social media full of scripture that defends their stance on everything political, everything societal, and everything theological. They knew it, but the problem is that wasn't leading them to love Jesus. It would be like um, my wife, Meredith, it would be like me knowing that she has beautiful blue eyes and beautiful strawberry blonde or red hair, but that never compelling me to be attracted to her, which would make us good friends, but would never make us intimate. You might know a lot of things about Jesus and you would even say they are beautiful. But if you are not compelled and attracted to him, then you might be good friends. You might be a fan of his, but you don't have any intimacy with him. Does that make sense? So the church at Ephesus knew a lot of facts and good facts, like doctrine kinds of facts about Jesus, but it hadn't compelled them towards love in a really, really long time. Verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Hey, you're great, you're great, you're great, but, and now I'm gonna destroy you. These are the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter two, the church at Ephesus. The problem with them wasn't that they weren't doing the right things, it's that they weren't doing the right things for the right reasons. And that should scare some of us. Because if you're like me and you've been raised in church, you sure know how to do the right things. And you are good at making sure everybody else knows that you are doing the right things. But the question is, where's the love? So Jesus says, you've abandoned love. And now he's gonna tell them how you get back there, which is the grace of the Lord to not just leave us, but to draw us back. So remember where you fall and repent. But then he says, do the works you did at first. It's interesting to me because when he, when he says you have abandoned the love you had at first, what I expect him to say is, then love me better. Then go love. Then go back and love me again. Like, love me better. You've lost your emotion, your intimacy with me. Um, go be more emotional. I know your works, but I, this is uh, interesting to me because it goes against some things that I believe, or used to believe. Here's what he says. You've stopped loving me Go do works again. Go do works. Go return to the works you did 
at first. So here's the danger. The danger for you and me is that we can be theologically and doctrinally correct. We can be faithful and we can stand on truth, but we still miss out on what God has for us. We can know all the right things and do all the right things, but still miss what the Lord wants to do through us. And I've lived most of my life doing the right things and knowing the right things. And I have, uh, for most of my life, missed what God actually wanted to do through me. That's the danger for us. And for those of us who have grown up in church, that danger has been heightened because we've grown so familiar with Jesus that we've actually forgotten what he's like. So he says, go back to do the works you did at first. So it's like any relationship for us. Um, if, if you find that you've abandoned love, that you aren't feeling the love that you felt at first, you can't just conjure up emotion. You can't just will yourself to love again. You can't do that. You have to go back to the works you did at first. Do you remember, those of you who are married, do you remember when you were dating your spouse? Do you remember uh, the way that you would stay up late at night talking to them on the phone or just listening to them talk on the phone? Anybody remember that? It was before texting or when you texted, you had to press the five, seven times just to get to one letter. Like it was before that. So you actually had to listen to someone. And so you'd be up late talking to them, laying in your bed and you just grabbed the phone from the kitchen and you just ran the cord all the way through your house into your, into your room to talk to your girlfriend or boyfriend at the time. And then your sister would grab the other phone and be like, I hear you. You remember all that? <laughs> You're gross. That's disgusting. You love her. So when, when we dated, when you dated your spouse, um, there was an affection there that made you um, magnify that person over the desires of other people and sometimes over your own desires. You would literally give up things for that person. You would give up hanging out with your friends, which meant you would have to give up your man card at that point, right? You'd, you would give up football games. You would give up going out with, with the girls. You would give up those things back then. You remember that? Like you were so drawn to that person. You didn't even think about it. You just chose them over. You remember this? Do you remember? And you would stay up till two in the morning talking on the phone. And now you've been married for 10, 15, 20 years, and you both fall asleep watching the news together. Instead, you're like, well, let's just stay up and talk. Okay, and you're, you're done. We talked, we said that sentence. Things have changed, right? And so now you've, you've, you might still have the affection, but things have changed. To get back to where you were, you gotta do the things you did before. It happens for us with children as well, right? So when your child was born or when you met your adopted child for the first time in that, in that office, you remember the feelings you had. Do you remember them? You don't? Is it because, I don't remember them either because so much has happened since then. And I just see my kids differently than I did then, right? But there was this feeling of, I was, it was emotional, but then this overwhelming sense of I'm responsible for this person or it's such a gift from the Lord. And now it's like, you just, you have to, they're a gift. They are a gift. They're a gift. He's a gift. He's a gift. A gift that needs to just stay outside for the rest of the afternoon, but he is still a gift to me. Uh, to remember your affection for your children, sometimes we have to go back to the things that we did at first. You have, you've got to look at old pictures. You've got to look at things that you remember. Uh, for, those, for women in the room, the reason why you like going to weddings is because you like being reminded of what it's like to be in love with your husband. Like, oh, I remember when you had hair and no gut. I remember that. I loved you then. I was drawn to you. Uh, 
it's why we have, to rem- we have to remind ourselves, right? It's why we have to do those things. So he says, return uh, to the works you did at first, which then begs the question, okay, so what works did the church at Ephesus do at first? What is he talking about? And the beautiful thing is we know because there's so much history about the church at Ephesus, we know. So let's go to Acts chapter 19. So in the left here Bible, of your Bible, Acts chapter 19. So in Acts 19, Paul has um, come back. He's preaching. Things are just amazing what's happening there. Look at verse 10 of Acts chapter 19. The Bible says this continued for two years. For two years, Paul was preaching the gospel and sharing uh, faith about Jesus anywhere he could, particularly daily in the hall of Tyrannus for hours. And for two years he did this so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How many of the residents knew? How many? All of them. Every single person that lived in Asia heard the gospel because of the church at Ephesus in just two years. Without Facebook, without Twitter, without TikTok, they knew. They knew the gospel. It's amazing what is happening in Ephesus. Verse 11, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. I mean, I don't know what kind of clothes people want off of your back, but this is amazing. His, even the things that just touched him are healing people and, and spirits are being cast out. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which apparently is a thing, I, I don't know, it's a thing. Itinerant means that they traveled around and they were Jewish exorcists. So Jewish believers who would exercise demons out of, out of people. And they traveled doing this. So itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They've seen Paul, just through his handkerchief, um, ex- exercising demons out of people. And they say, hey, we can do that. We're just gonna claim G- Paul's God. We're gonna, we're gonna do that. Which, hey, side note for us just quickly. If your faith is built on the works of someone else, you're not going to be able to do what you think you're going to be able to do. Because look what happens. The seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So they say, hey, I invoke you to come out by the name of, of Jesus, the one that Paul proclaims. But the evil spirit answered, verse 15, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who the heck are you? So even the demons know better than to trust someone who doesn't actually trust in Jesus. That's a second sermon. We'll do that later. Uh, Verse 16, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, on the itinerant Jewish exorcists, uh, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I don't know. I don't know what kind of fight you've been in, but it seems like if you're naked, you've lost, you've lost the fight. <laughs> Things were going really well until I lost my pants, but I still feel like I won. <laughs> 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. What became known? The power of Jesus. Both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So here's the first thing the church, here's the first works the church of Ephesus, they extolled the name of Jesus. That just means they magnified or lifted high. In other words, the name of Jesus was the biggest thing happening in Ephesus at the time. It was all anyone could talk about 
was Jesus. The church at Ephesus, what they did at first is that they made much of Jesus. They didn't make much of Paul, didn't make much of his handkerchiefs, didn't make much of the exorcisms. They made much of Jesus. They didn't make much of their doctrine. They didn't make much of their endurance. They made much of Jesus. This was the first thing they did. This is their first works. And then it gets a little more personal from there. Verse 18, and many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. They're extolling, they're magnifying the name of Jesus. And then the byproduct is that people are coming to confess the sins of their heart and to divulge or share, confess the sins of their hands, their practices. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, here's what happens for us. We celebrate this because this is what happens when people come to know Jesus, right? They confess their sins. They tell us how dirty their lives were. And then we clap and then we baptize them. And then we celebrate and we move on and we don't have to do that part again. I want you to notice who is confessing and divulging their practices. Those who were what? Believers. The Christians were doing this, which means a couple of things. First of all, that the Christians in Ephesus still had sin in their hearts. And I think we can all agree, yep, me too. The Christians at Ephesus were confessing the sins of their hearts and divulging the sins of their hands. And here's where it gets awkward for all of us. The way back to our first love begins with magnifying Jesus and then continually confessing the sins of our hearts and the sins of our hands. Man, we don't like that. There's a few reasons why we don't like that. One is because we're still the children of Adam and Eve. And in Genesis chapter three, they run from God instead of towards God in their sin. And secondly, churches have become a cesspool of gossip instead of a safe place for confession. I think one of the main reasons why we don't confess our sins in the church is because we're afraid of how the church will handle our confession. The church at Ephesus had such a freedom that the Christians were confessing the sins of their hearts and the sins of their hands. This is how they returned to their first love. This is the works that they were doing. Which tells us this, here's what happened. The church at Ephesus was gritty and grimy. It was dirty and not put together. It was chaotic and there wasn't great programming. It just, things just kept happening. People were confessing things at the wrong times to the wrong people. And, and it was just gritty and grimy. It was not comfortable. Like for us in the South of America, a church like this would make us squirm and we would run from it. And I don't think we'd run from it because it would disgust us, but I think it's because it would expose us. We run from confession-oriented people, from real people who confess their sins, not because it's gross to us, but because we're afraid we're gonna have to do that next. And so we run to safe places. Where, do, where can I go to hide? Where can I go to not have to confess? And I will say this every Sunday and every day until the day I die, confession is not a curse, it is a gift. It's a gift that the spirit would expose sin in us and we would have the gift to confess it to the Lord and divulge it to other people. But I think the church at Ephesus, I think they got too clean. I think they got too buttoned up. I think their, um, 
their theological intellect started to overwhelm their spiritual desires to be known and to know. They got too clean. They stopped being real. They stopped being honest. They became too concerned with appearance and they began to believe their own hype. And listen, when that happens in a church, we abandon our first love. Our desire for our church is that we would be a gritty, grimy kind of church. That there is freedom in your small groups, freedom in your discipleship groups, freedom to come to this altar at any point. If at any point today you need to come here and just pray and confess the Lord, you can do it. You're not gonna mess me up, it's fine. That's what this is about. If you need to pull someone to the side and go out in the hallway and have a conversation, do it. But as we get cleaner and cleaner, we get more turned off by the dirt. And here's what happens. When we become to get cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and the people of the world and sinners who need Jesus start walking into our doors, we tell them, hey, you're allowed to be here. Just clean up first. Just clean up first. No, you can't do that in the parking lot. You can't do that here. Why not? Why not? The church at Ephesus magnified Jesus. They confessed the sins of their hearts to the Lord and they confessed the work of their hands to each other. And then it continues. Look what else happens in verse uh, 19. A number of those who had practiced magic arts. I don't think it's like Dungeons and Dragons. I don't think it's like actual magic arts, like magic arts. Brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So, Scholars say anywhere between $10,000 to $50,000. They counted the cost and they burnt their books. So here's what this means for us. There's a, I hope you see the progression. They made much of Jesus. They confessed the sin of their hearts. And that word just means even to the Lord. You just confess. It means that you agree with the spirit that there's something going on. Then they divulged their practices to one another, a safe, trusted group of people. And they divulged, here's what I've been doing. And then from there, the Bible says they began killing the sin that entangled them. They burned their books. But how did they do it in verse 19? Together. They burned their books together. Because here's what happens in a church that divulges their practices. Other people say, oh, well, I do the same practice. That's my struggle too. You got books, I got books. Well, we, let's burn them. You wanna burn them? Okay, anybody else have these books? Anybody else? And then now you have a community of people holding you accountable saying, let's go destroy the sin that's entangled us. Let's go together. So now there's a group of people together and they're doing it according to verse 19 in the sight of all, which then compels people to say, anybody else got books? Anybody else got sin you wanna kill? You wanna do it now? Let's do it now. We're all here. Let's do it now. This church at Ephesus had abandoned their first love because I think they just got way too clean. They got way concer too concerned with how they looked and who they were attracting and their marketing. And they forgot to be a safe place for sinners to confess and to grow in the Lord. And the result is in verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is, this is why we're here today. Because the church at Ephesus magnified Jesus, confessed the sins of their hearts, confessed the sins of their hands to each other, and they did away with sin. We're here today because this church was faithful to it. So then the question has to be asked of us, then how do you know if you've lost your first love? How do you know if you've left your first love? Because we don't want to admit it. If we, if we are theologically sound, we know the words around this. 
We know how to make people think that we haven't left our first love. But a season like we've had in 2020 will very quickly expose you as a fraud. There are a few things to know or ways to know if you've abandoned the love you had at first. One, do you view church and following Jesus as obligation rather than opportunity? Are you obligated to do what you do? Are you obligated to come to church? Are you obligated to be part of a small group? Are you obligated to read the Bible? Are you obligated to? Because when you first started dating your spouse, you were not obligated to be with them. You wanted to. It was an opportunity to spend time with them. Uh, Secondly, would you rather be right than be in relationship? I mean, this church at Ephesus, they knew doctrine and they were right. Would you rather be right or be in relationship? And the one way for you to check that is go back to your social media feeds and see what you've posted and shared and liked. What do you think is happening? Would you rather have friends or would you rather be right? Would you rather have relationship or would you rather be known as someone who is right? You abandon your first love. Are you pursuing convenience and comfort rather than your calling? If it's not convenient and doesn't make you feel comfortable, do you abandon it? Or are you chasing after your calling? And then two big ones for us. Um, Is it easier for you to defend Jesus than to delight in him? What's happened for a lot of us is the words and verses of scripture have only become ammo for us to defend our stance as opposed to actually delighting in the man who gave us this word to begin with. Can you delight in him? David would say, do you have the joy of your salvation still? Or have you become a warrior on the warpath instead of a son of the most high king? And then finally, would you rather cover your sin than confess it? You'd rather run from God than run to him. And again, that's in us from the beginning. But this church at Ephesus, when they magnified Jesus, it was like they were compelled to get all the junk out. Not because they had to, not because they were guilted into it, but because like Paul says in Romans chapter two, the kindness of Jesus led them to repentance. They made much of Jesus, they confessed, they divulged, and then they um, did away with their sin. So what I love is that end of Revelation tells us there's a way back. And Revelation two tells us there's a way back. There are three things we must do. We must remember First, we've got to remember where we've come from. Remember the heights from which we've fallen. Do you remember that? Do you remember what it was like to follow Jesus for the first time? Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember the draw to him? Do you remember what it was like at some time to follow Jesus? And if you can't, I understand because nobody, nobody loses their first love overnight. It's a series of small decisions that lead us to a place like the prodigal son and you wake up and you come to yourself and say, what, how did I get here? And then you've got a decision to make. Do you continue in that path, living at 75, 80% of who God has called you to be or do you turn and run back to the father that there might be a celebration and you'd be welcome to be who God has called you to be? Do you remember what it was like to follow him? Do you remember your state when he saved you? You remember that you were broken and a sinner and on your way to hell. Do you remember that? Because it seems like over time we begin to feel like, no, 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 I was actually pretty good. He's lucky to have me on his team. Secondly, we have to repent. It just means you gotta change your mind or change your direction. 
Like it's not enough just to remember, then what are you gonna do about it? What are we gonna do? Yeah, if, if we can acknowledge I've lost my first love, okay, then what do we do? Well, we return from those things. And then finally, we have to redo. We've gotta go back to our works. And again, we're gonna do what the church at Ephesus did. First, we magnify Jesus. So the question is, what are you magnifying right now instead of Jesus? What has gotten in your way of magnifying Jesus? Are you magnifying yourself? Are you magnifying your spouse? Are you magnifying your kids? Are you magnifying your circumstances? Are you magnifying relational strife? Are you magnifying financial strife? Are you magnifying the circumstance in the world right now? Are you magnifying the things that frustrate you? When you wake up in the morning, what do you turn to? Do you pull open the news app as, for, as quickly as you can? Do you look at, at the COVID numbers? Do you, um, do you see what's going on in, in Portland? What, what do you do? Because you're making much of those things and by doing so, you're blurring what you can see in Jesus. When we lose sight of Jesus, we lose our love for him. We gotta magnify Jesus. And when that happens, when we truly magnify the Jesus who he says that he is, then we confess. And I know what that feels like. Trust me, I know. I don't, I don't like it. I did not like it. I ran from it. But we have to be a people who confess. If we want to be holy Jesus' people, if we want to be his sons and his daughters, if we want to delight in him, then we got to get all the junk out of our lives. We got to confess. And we get to confess. Confess to the Lord. Then we got to divulge our practices. And I don't mean you stand up in your life group and talk about all your addictions. But I mean, maybe you have two or three trusted people and you call them and you say, hey, I need you. I need you this week. Pray for me. Maybe you need to be in a discipleship group. Maybe you need to be in a small group to find people that you can confide in, that you trust and that love you. Because it's not enough just to confess it. I thought it was. I thought it was enough to confess it to the Lord. But then there was nobody to help me to kill my sin. So we divulged to each other and here's um, one cry I have for us as a church. I want us to be a place, a safe place where people can divulge their practices to us. But as long as we think and we believe our own hype, we're gonna be turned off by people's divulging of practices. Let's not forget where we've come from. And then finally, we have to kill our sin. We gotta put it to death. It's not a pet to be trained. It's a wild animal to be killed. The devil is seeking whom he may devour. We don't train sin. We can't make sin do what we want it to do to make us more like Jesus. We gotta kill it. It's on a mission to kill us. Revelation 2 verse seven says that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's what this means. This is not just for the church of Ephesus. This is for us. If you have an ear to hear, if the Spirit has convicted and compelled you, you are hearing from God. And your next step from hearing is action. Because then it continues in verse seven. To the one who conquers... And thankfully, Paul would say we are more than conquerors for those who follow Jesus. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In the Garden of Eden, there's two trees, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're kicked out of the garden. And then God puts a, an angel there to defend the tree of life. Because here's the problem. Once, we, once they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were in a, a world of sin and to go back to the eternal tree of life would mean that we would continually live in sin. But because of Jesus, the gate back to the eternal tree of life has been opened to us, which means this, no matter how far you've run away from your first love, you can always come back. 
because guilt is pushing you further and grace is drawing you closer. So this morning, there's two pleas for us. One, that you would trust Jesus with your life because he's better than you think he is and he's better than what you've seen. He welcomes you home. And secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus, but you feel like you've lost your first love, all hope's not lost. You can come back home. We can come back through the works we did at first. If you bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll we'll wrap up. Just wanna um, help us move forward in confession. I wanna help us in that. And again, it's not a curse, it is a gift. And for every person that confesses this morning, there are hundreds of others who would say, yeah, me too. So a means of confession this morning, how many of you would say that, yeah, I've abandoned, I've left my first love. Those things are true of me. I'd rather defend than delight. How many of you, by show of hands, just in honest confession, would say, yes, I, I have neglected. I've abandoned my first love. I'm not there. Praise the Lord for your boldness and honesty. And that step for you is gonna lead you to life. Maybe there's some in the room this morning who you, it's not that you've abandoned your first love. You've never had a first love. You've never known Jesus. And for some of you, it's being exposed to you because you don't remember what it was like to delight in him. And it's only been ritual. It's only been tradition. It's only been guilt. And you don't know Jesus. If you're feeling guilty, you don't know Jesus. So maybe this morning, there's some of you who would say, I don't, you know what? I don't think I'm actually following Jesus. I'm, I'm following the church. I'm following Paul's handkerchief. I'm following um, baptism, but I'm not following Jesus. Anybody would say, yeah, that's me this morning. I'm not actually following Jesus. And I want to. The door is open to follow him through confession of sin and placing your faith in him. I'm just gonna pray for us. Daryl will come up and dismiss us. And can I, We don't want to walk out of here trying harder, but walk out of here resting in the grace of Jesus. God, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for the way that you pursue us constantly and you are not content to leave us where we are. You, um, you welcome us as we are, but you love us too much to leave us there. So for those of us this morning that you have um, exposed a weakness, exposed sin, may we be faithful to confess, faithful to divulge. Give us some friends to confess to and give us the power and strength to kill that sin uh, that, that your name and renown might be known in all of Ola and all of McDonough and not a person that lives here will, doesn't know you, does, hasn't heard the gospel of Jesus. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.